cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net podcast on Quant Finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor of Risk, and uh, our guest for this episode is Arthur Sepp, Head of Quantitative Strategies at Clearstar Labs, which is a family office based in Zurich. Hi, Arthur. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mauro, and uh, uh, thank you, the audience, uh, for joining us. Um, today we'll cover a wide range of topics, uh, but let's first focus on uh, the latest paper you published with us, a robust stochastic volatility model for interest rates, which you wrote with uh, Parviz Rachmanov of uh, Citibank, and uh, the paper is online uh, on Risk.net, obviously. Uh, now, at Clearstar Labs, you are responsible for developing trading strategies and primarily uh, within the decentralized finance space. So it may sound surprising that uh, the work you have just published is about interest rate volatility, uh, because even in uh, uh, the highly, highly correlated world we, we live in, uh, that has got very little to do with DeFi. So uh, why did you decide to work on this model? What is the motivation behind it? Uh, well, uh, the log normal stochastic volatility with beta formulation, it's uh, like my baby. Uh, with Piotr Karazinski, we co-authored a paper on this model in RISC uh, back in uh, 2012, I think. Uh, and I, I believe this is uh, the best uh, stochastic volatility model out there. <laughs> Uh, last year, fixed income market experienced significant volatility in rates and in their uh, implied mm -hmm. volatilities. In particular, the correlation between rates and implied volatilities turned positive. Uh, and uh, also because P investors started to buy protection of, mm -hmm. against the increase, against the further rise in rates, implied uh, skews for swap options turned positive. And this is very unusual pattern for what for past uh, probably two decades. From uh, uh, some ex-colleagues, uh, I heard that uh, some quants uh, uh, failed to calibrate their models in this very unusual mm. environment. And uh, with uh, Actually, with uh, my co-author, with Parviz, uh, we have been in spare time, we have been working on another, like, say, bigger model or, or more like uh, uh, extension of our model with Piotr Karazinski. And also Parviz uh, Rachmanov, he, he is working at Citigroup and he deals with hybrids, so, so he is uh, the specialist in these uh, topics. And then uh, we concluded that we actually using this uh, beta stochastic volatility model, uh, we could uh, extend it to interest rate markets. We can incorporate this uh, positive or negative skew uh, like uh, within the stochastic volatility framework. And uh, I had pleasure working with Parvis on this paper in my spare time. Ah, fantastic. So basically, uh, this is the answer to a, a need uh, that uh, the market presented last year when models could not handle the spike in uh, the jumping volatility. 
and correlations, as, as you said. Um, so what is the objective of this paper? What, what is he addressing precisely? Uh, the objective of the model is to of this model is to introduce the volatility skew between uh, swap uh, for swap and uh, markets uh, using this beta parameter. So, uh, so part uh, to explain why it's necessary. Uh, typically or traditionally, the implied uh, swap and skew is modeled uh, using a local volatility. Uh, for example, displaced diffusion or CV model and potentially uncorrelated stochastic volatility model. Well, the disadvantage of local volatility models is that they are not flexible enough to produce this positive skew. They, they are well in, it's enough to produce negative skew, but they fail to when the skews turn positive. And another disadvantage, they lead to explosions. So, so when people simulate these models, uh, for because in the end, uh, most of the pricing of uh, hybrid products is done using Monte Carlo simulations, and therefore it's important that the models are theoretically consistent, that you they don't blow up. And in race environments, it's very typical that uh, Small small misspecifications in, in model dynamics will lead to blow-ups. On the other hand, uh, Heston, people also use Heston model with zero correlation. Uh, and because they could use uh, some, some analytical formulas uh, for, for model to calibrate this model. Uh, but uh, actually, this analytic approach for Heston model does not work when we introduce uh, non-zero correlation. And our objective is to provide a robust stochastic volatility model using this correlation or, or beta or beta mm -hmm. parameter. Uh, and that uh, this model is capable of calibrating to market with both positive or negative uh, skews. And this model is easy also to say once it's calibrated, it is easy to use for Monte Carlo simulations, for valuations of uh, hybrid products. I see, I see. So can you describe this model more in details and explain what uh, the innovation, the technical innovation in it uh, is? Of course. So we work with uh, Shayet one-factor interest rate model. Uh, Shayet mm -hmm. uh, framework is popular because by construction, it is consistent with observed uh, term structure of interest rate. In uh, observed interest rates, uh, so so no calibration is necessary at this point. It also is a low-dimensional model, unlike uh, full-blown uh, LIBOR models. Uh, single factor can be interpreted as a level of range. Our innovation is that we model the volatility of this single factor using log-normal stochastic uh, beta model. And this dependence and introduce uh, using dependence between ray, uh, rate factor and volatility introduced using this beta parameter. And in the interpretation is uh, of this parameter is the rate of change in volatility using change in the factor. 
for example, beta equals to one means uh, for 10 basis uh, point increase in the rate factor, the volatility is expected to increase by 10 basis points. It's very simple. Uh, could you do that uh, interpretation for Heston model? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so and uh, to enable so so what what is our contribution is then we derive closed form uh, solution for valuation of uh, swaptions uh, under uh, Shayet framework uh, using characteristic functions and uh, our approach is original for for Shayet mm. model with stochastic rates and then we once we know the characteristic function of the swap rate we can use uh, Lipton Lewis uh, formula for to price calls and put options uh, in this model and, and to calibrate model and uh, our model had three parameters uh, so, so usually people we would like to calibrate the model like globally at uh, several uh, expiry slices and our model had three parameters, very natural three parameters for expiry slices, uh, level of volatility, uh, volatility beta, which models the skew, and uh, volatility of volatility, which models the convexity. So, and it's uh, straightforward to calibrate this term structure. It's very easy to interpret, and that's our contribution. <laughs> Fantastic. Um only a couple of months ago, we published a paper, uh, which I'm sure you know, uh, in which Andrei Lyashenko and Yevgeny Koncharov uh, introduced a rate model uh, also based on the Shayet model, like like yours. Uh, assuming you know that paper, uh, what is the difference between your model and Lyashenko and Koncharov's one? Uh, well, so for listeners uh, unfamiliar with the topic, uh, uh, like uh, Lyashenko recently introduced a factor model uh, where the dynamics uh, of uh, interest rate factors is modeled in p-measure and then the q dynamics of the forward rate is obtained by augmenting this p dynamics with the uh, state variables with additional state variables that uh, that uh, make it uh, the, the augmented dynamics uh, introduces the Q measure. So, so, so this Q measure is introduced by augmenting the state dynamics with uh, and uh, and uh, as in Shayet framework, this factor model, the dynamic uh, of this factor model under Q measure is consistent with the initial term structure by construction. So in some sense, you can take any P model, like uh, say Nelson Siegel, very popular model. Mm -hmm. you, you can model your, your interest rate under, uh, under this P measure. You can build a consistent risk neutral model and, and uh, price your derivatives. Right? And uh, what I would say that our approach extends uh, Lashenko factor model to enable the implied volatility skews, which is important for, for pricing, for, for pricing derivatives and for pricing uh, uh, fixed income exotics. 
So as the next step, we actually, so, so for risk, we introduce it's a simple step. First step is just one factor model, which extends mm -hmm. uh, Lashenko one factor model. As next step, we are working on extension of this model that extends also the N factor, the general N factor uh, model. And uh, what is interesting, uh, we consider as a, a use case uh, Nelson Siegel model which is very popular uh, by central banks uh, mm -hmm. because this, this factor model has three parameters, uh, level, slope, and convexity, and it's observable. So it's very intuitive model to, to, to mod. And this model is really applied to different, to model the different shape of the yield curve. Now the question uh, um, arises, what is, uh, uh, like, uh, what is the dynamics of uh, implied volatility surfaces under these different factors, right? When mm -hmm. the slope will increase by 100 basis points, what happens to my wall surface? And, and we actually, as a, we extend, right? So we extend, we provide this extra capability for, for people to, 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 to use more general, like a Lashenko approach. I see, I see. Um, so what can you tell us about the findings of this work with the conclusions and uh, uh, how do you feature it working in, uh, in a trading desk? So very good uh, question. So let's start. So. For a single factor model, is uh, you is just a consistent way to model implied volatilities, right? However, uh, it's typical that uh, trading desk uh, has multi-factor exposure, so they can have like, for example, simple spread option between uh, ten-year and two-year rate. It requires you to have a multi-factor approach. And like, let's uh, say we go to Nelson Siegel, and this now interesting question or interesting uh, modern framework is how each factor affects my uh, volatility surface, right? For example, what, what we observe for Nelson Siegel, it has level and slope. And the level is positively correlated with rates. So, so lower rates, lower implied volatilities. Slope is negatively correlated with rates. Mm -hmm. So, when actually for past decades, when the curves were very steep, so people were always expecting like a higher rates, which were not materialized. Uh, actually, skew uh, slope was positive, and actually because of negative interaction with the rates uh, volatility, volatility was artificially low. Like everyone complained. Right? Last year we have a double whammy, right? That both rates went up and uh, slope flattened and so it was two-sided effects on uh, on rates correlation uh, that is like what we saw we saw implied volatilities increasing by 300 percent over 300 percent relative terms and so our model enables uh, so so first uh, as a uh, for any desk you want to decompose your risk, right? So they have uh, many positions across different uh, markets. And then question, okay, what happens if tomorrow the slope 
uh, flattens by 100 basis points, right? We provide this answer. Our model can generate these consistent uh, scenarios, which are typically useful for risk management, for macro risk management. On the other hand, for buy side, uh, these factors, they, the good thing about these uh, P factors that they autocorrelated. So usually there's some mean reversion, some convergence. Therefore, using this like P dynamics, right, you can forecast. You can forecast. Okay, right now, of course, uh, slope is very negative, but in one year time, we can expect that it reverts back to normal. And then, using our framework, we can also see what expected impact on uh, volatilities, on option volatilities. And this is a very interesting question then for relative value, for some sort of uh, uh, scenario, like some trade ideas. And therefore, it's very interesting for uh, buy side, for macro hedge funds. So to conclude, our ideas will be interesting both for, for sales side and for buy side. Huh. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to ask you now a more general question. So in the past two, three years, uh, at risk, we uh, observed a quite significant surge in research, research works published on volatility modeling. Uh, this year alone, I think more than a modern after papers we published were somehow related to volatility modeling. Why do you think that is? Why is volatility uh, so popular, has become so popular so recently? Uh, well, my conjecture is that uh, uh, it is caused by extreme volatilities we observed uh, during COVID related market crash in uh, March. Uh, 2020. Uh, typically, such uh, spikes in implied and in realized volatilities are outside of stability ranges for uh, most quant, for say typical quant models. Uh, there's always, uh, for example, when I work uh, in uh, 208 at uh, Merrill Lynch. And we had that uh, market crash. Uh, some of equity actually was one example of equity model where the local volatility was capped at 80%. So just to enable some PDE solver to, to mm -hmm. go incorporate these uh, boundaries, volatility was capped at 80%. And of course, when VIX uh, hit 80%, that model could not feed the market, it could not produce any reasonable risk. And of course, <laughs> the simple solution would be to increase the cap, right? And to yeah. effectively to then to increase the cap, you need to reconsider your PDE solver, you need to like do some adjustments. Uh, and I think it's also given the magnitude of moves, uh, dislocations we had back in uh, March 2020. And we also heard a lot of stories, right, that some French banks, without naming them, they had problems with uh, marking their exotics. And therefore, it just motivates people once to reconsider what they have done and how to say, how to go <laughs> 
how to incorporate this black swan and wait for another one. And I'm sure like I heard a lot of uh, like from, from my uh, ex colleagues that they're very unhappy with how their risk models behaved. And our paper is the first step in this direction, I think, but I'm more than sure that you will receive a few <laughs> uh, papers on modeling uh, interest volatility as well in the next right, the couple trend, of years. <laughs> right, the trend is not over then. Um, yeah, I understand that models need to uh, need to be more flexible and account for uh, black swans, as you as you call them, uh, which are uh, uh, less and less uh, infrequent. Um, Right, so so far we talked about a subject belonging to um, the first chapter of your career, the one you spent in banking, although you've just shown that uh, you're not uh, not a stranger to that world. Um, uh, after banking, you moved to asset management. Uh, you went to work for uh, Julius Baer, uh, which is a move that has been quite common uh, many of your peers have moved from banking to asset management or hedge funds. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you is, what skills and experience from banking uh, helped you the most as you moved to the asset management, to the buy side business? Uh, yes, first, uh, I think, uh... It was a good move, and uh, I like. Uh, I enjoyed working with Julius Bar. I think we try to build like more like uh, client-focused approach, where we would uh, create products that benefits for the clients. And uh, uh, for me, it was uh, was very useful to have a broad experience in modeling uh, implied volatilities managing risk of uh, vanilla and exotic derivatives for for key markets, including equities, fixed income, credit effects, and commodities. Naturally, on buy side, you would work with very broad, say, asset classes, with uh, portfolios, also with investment portfolios that include different asset classes and different uh, strategies. And uh, that my, my one background in all these uh, different mm. markets uh, was was very helpful for me, and especially in later on when we currently I'm working on more on market neutral strategies, and, and it's very helpful to understand what the what the best way to hedge them using either linear instruments or non-linear instruments. Uh, and second, I think it's uh, very useful that, that I had a significant exposure to C++ and to large-scale production systems that were shared across many uh, teams. It's very important for quantity to have a broader, say, reliable mm. software engineering that work uh, across different platforms. And uh, on buy side also, you like building models involves connecting data, models, instruments, and uh, deriving uh, signals, portfolio allocations, executions. So it's very important to have a broad uh, uh, ability to process uh, large-scale uh, systems and work with uh, large-scale systems. 
for me, C++ was very like helpful to know because it's very good language to understand the architecture. Uh, nowadays, I mostly use Python. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and but it still it helps me. My previous background helps me to develop this uh, scalable infrastructure using Python, using open source and uh, like some proprietary packages. As a matter of fact, I have few open source uh, Python packages on GitHub. People are welcome <laughs> to to use. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah. And did the transition between the Q and the P measures, so from the risk neutral to the reward valuations, and did they require any any effort on your side to you know, a change in uh, way of thinking? Uh, was it a difficult step? Can say it's mostly it's a conceptual step. So to work in the risk uh, in say in uh, P measure, you need a good understanding of risk reward, right? Usually in valuation, your your edge comes from ability to to sell, right? To to design a product that has meets client demand and you can charge the premium inside that, right? Uh, on buy side, it's more about you have to find opportunities right that that has inherited uh, some sort of inherited risk premium and you have to single it out and to hedge it and therefore it's like you need to uh, you need to be able to to have this edge to, to look okay what is out of several opportunities which gives me the best edge Mm -hmm. I see, I see. Right, so uh, moving on as, uh, uh, as your career moved on, uh, after asset management, you went to a more, let's say, specialized industry. You went into uh, the crypto industry. Uh, I suppose uh, maybe your appetite for volatility wasn't fully satisfied while you were managing traditional assets. Uh, so you, you went to crypto, there you could assume merge your knowledge of asset management and uh, your knowledge of DeFi that you acquired meanwhile. Uh, you published in Risk uh, just last year about automated market making with Alex Lipton. That was a paper in which you, uh, you show how to settle FX transaction on blockchains. And I understand that was the first uh, of its kind. So can you uh, give us a brief recap of uh, what that proposal was, uh, and uh, can you tell us if you have an idea um, of whether that has been picked up in the industry? Yes, it it was a uh, it was a very productive to 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 to, to work uh, with Alex as usual, and he was actually kind of person who motivated me to look into crypto and we started with uh, this framework so for me it was very good uh, intro <laughs> uh, to crypto uh, well automated uh, market making is the base of trading venues in the blockchain ecosystem uh, the conventional order matching system uh, like in traditional exchanges uh, cannot easily function on a blockchain because of the latency 
for example, on Ethereum blockchain, uh, each block is created every 10 or 12 seconds on average. Right, and also we have higher uh, gas fees, so that mm -hmm. therefore, uh, therefore, most decentralized exchanges like uh, or DEXs in short, like Uniswap and uh, Curve and others, use uh, liquidity vaults. Uh, let's just take, for example, Ether USDC uh, pool on Uniswap. And uh, liquidity provider deposits uh, each uh, or and USDC usually 50-50. And then traders can use that liquidity to swap. They either buy, uh, the, they deposit the USDC and take keys or vice versa. And, and that is, uh, and the rate, uh, important is that there's some function, like what is called constant function auto, automated market maker, that determines the rate uh, of the swap just given uh, the pool available pool liquidity and the order size. Right. And now the question and, and the difference with traditional you, exchanges, you know the uh, your your slippage cost in advance. Right? This is a function of your order and the function of uh, available pool liquidity. And now that's important question because there is no leakage, uh, not no link uh, with uh, price oracle, right? That uh, DEXs are subject to arbitrage, right? If price is uh, dislocated for some reason, there's you you can buy uh, at a different price than on the centralized exchange. There's an arbitrage opportunity. Uh, with Alex, uh, we created a framework on how to keep on-chain prices uh, consistent with, uh, say, centralized exchange using this arbitrage mechanism. Mm -hmm. effectively, uh, there must be some some sort of uh, like layer with a price oracle and with ability to execute this uh, arbitrage transactions. They are very small but still to keep the pool consistent with uh, with uh, traditional exchanges. And this framework is very suitable for central bank digital currencies or CBDCs in short, uh, because central banks would like to have the same, the fair exchange rate between traditional and on-chain markets. Right? And over past year, we saw, for example, the most interesting project is Mariana, uh, launched mm -hmm. by Bank of International Settlements, to implement framework very similar uh, to ours, using the same concept. So definitely, I expect uh, like continuing the adaptation of our framework. Uh, that, that links uh, on-chain and off-chain uh, trading venues. Fantastic. And uh, that is not your only contribution in the crypto space, in the literature of the crypto space, I should say. Uh, so you worked on a quantitative approach to the asset allocation of cryptocurrencies in a diversified portfolio. So I, I basically try to answer uh, the question on how much one should invest in cryptocurrencies uh, if it wants to be uh, diversified. 
Uh, now, I'm pleased to say you worked on that paper, and uh, as we were preparing for this podcast, it got approved. So it is officially forecoming in risk. Uh, so what we are talking about now will be a bit of uh, so we should we should make a, a, a spoiler alert and uh, but if you could uh, anticipate uh, a bit of your finding in, in that work and uh, what, what did you uh, conclude would be the optimal allocation of uh, Bitcoin and, and Ether I understand you uh, I, I know you focused on. Well, so so first uh, thank you for, for accepting the paper. Uh, I believe it makes a very valuable contribution uh, for uh, investors for, and also for crypto community. Uh, well, it, it's a very practical question because uh, like two years, usually the demand is very cyclical right on crypto. <laughs> uh, back in the last rally in the, uh, 2021, many people st <coughs> start, uh, many allocators started to ask the question how much we should allocate. But in, important question, what, what I answer in the paper, I think is this, that uh, whether it's an asset class, like crypto is an asset class or not. And uh, definition of asset class is that it provides distinct uh, characteristic for inclusion to investment portfolio. Being that it's, it has expected positive risk premium, of course, mm -hmm. It provides diversification. Uh, it's little correlated to asset class, and it has some narratives, right? And uh, and of course, like what I don't like is using like some sort of okay fixed allocations. And in hindsight, it's very easy because you you see. I mean, for the past I think decade, like it's a tremendous performance. Even for past a few years, it's, it's a very good performance. So you cannot just say, okay, what happens if I put like three uh, percent in Bitcoin back into mm -hmm. 15, right? Of course, I have good performance, but it's not how how you would think in real life. So, so what I created is I wanted to have a quantitative approach to answer this question that only we would say process information what is available at that time say back in 2015 that i started my simulations and going forward we only look at quantitative approaches so i implemented a risk-based approach where we just look uh, and, uh, with at the correlation so so if bitcoin or ether are less correlated to asset classes naturally we add them because they provide the verification Mm -hmm. Then I also had uh, expected a risk return uh, approach to, to maximize portfolio sharp ratio, where we look at both say, expected returns that I use some trailing average of the past uh, few years. Very natural. Uh, and uh, one was more enhanced where we look at the skewness. So it's an important concept that some people like this kind of uh, spike in assets where they they, they can think, okay, it's, uh, they look for skewness in other ways. So and we mm -hmm. can also create an optimizer for that. Uh, so I implemented all these methods, uh, four methods, uh, which in the rolling forward approach that we only use data available at that time. And we use model weights, produce model weights for inclusion into portfolios. And we see the realized performance, right? 
and we do rebalancing quarter, quarterly rebalancing. This is very natural approach for, for traditional asset allocation. Well, the main result with surprising consistency, all four models indicated, uh, I think on average is around uh, between two and three percent uh, optimal allocation to crypto. That is very surprising, very consistent. Uh, the key conclusion is uh, crypto or say Bitcoin and Ether are indeed uh, viable asset classes on themselves. They do provide diversification. And, and I believe uh, my paper is uh, like will help people to decide to make the decision. And now we especially we also we talk with some asset allocators. And, and why actually I, I wanted to have separated Bitcoin or Ether because some people so in 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 crypto people either lie love Bitcoin or they <laughs> love Ether. <laughs> They don't like both. So, and also in investment community, actually, I think some people object Bitcoin because it's not environmentally friendly. Subject, mm -hmm. But it's investment policies, and therefore they can allocate you either. And uh, if they have any questions, they can read my paper. <laughs> of course. So, you you find uh, that all all the uh, strategies for asset allocation uh, point at about two point six two point seven if I remember correctly on average. Yes. Um, so that would be let's say global. So the uh, the two uh, the two coins, uh, Bitcoin and Ether, together. And then uh, I suppose one depending on which whichever you prefer, you can allocate either all to one, all to the other, or diversified within the crypto space as well. Uh, did you not consider the other coins? Or are, are they not stable enough or reliable enough, you think? Well, it's, uh, yes, uh, with hindsight. So here, of course, we use uh, some hindsight. Uh, it's, I, I would not advise to allocate to single coins, or at least to, to have it within a broad uh, uh, portfolio, broad diversified mm -hmm. portfolio. I see. Um, what are the big open questions from a quant analytics viewpoint in the, the crypto space? What do you think? So very good uh, question. And uh, so this is something that I'm currently working on. So the biggest problem is diversification. And uh, for example, we are developing uh, market neutral strategies where we can uh, say borrow on one protocol, st stake uh, some coins on another protocol. And here uh, our risk, uh, so, so we are market neutral, right? We, if it's the same coin, we are not subject to liquidation. Uh, the problem is uh, binary risk is a protocol protocol risk, right? That some protocols they can be exploited, some can be outright scams, <laughs> and therefore, when building of portfolios, we are not thinking of market risk like in traditional finance. We are thinking of uh, interaction risk, right? And protocols can be linked to each other. Uh, <clears throat> And, and therefore, what what we have so 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 the, the biggest 
there, there's no way to diversify like so the only thing like diversify say you you buy stocks and you buy puts and 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 you are diversified right or you buy bonds or some uncorrelated instruments here the only way to diversify is to be uh, define some sort of a risk scores for each protocols and to bring your allocation below this limits right so when when i look at a at a say portfolio of uh, strategies i have interactions right for me the most risky strategy is the one that has interactions with many protocols right mm. and therefore my allocation constraints is this uh, matrix matrix of uh, cross exposures right it's, it's zero one right and, and therefore instead of solving markowitz uh, problem uh we solve uh, uh linear program right so we also we have expectations about the returns on each strategy but our risk is this linear kind of interaction matrix and and that we we built our portfolios optimizing that and that i think it's this is like uh, it's uh, my solution to to solve this problem but i think it's open it's mm -hmm. really op open like portfolio construction or in DeFi, like and uh, and i'm curious to see what what other people are suggesting or proposing or how they, they deal with really with uh, diversifying the risk of uh, their market neutral portfolios uh, yeah, yeah, I, I expect I expect a more formal uh, analytical approach to these problems will will become uh, mainstream. Uh, so apart from from this, so uh, dealing with protocol risk and portfolio construction construction within DeFi, uh, what's next in terms of research for yourself? Well, so for research, uh, actually, very interesting topic in DeFi. It's uh, this uh, what we already discussed: automated market making. Uh, as as I said, in uh, when you provide liquidity to to the pool, traders will use uh, your your uh, your liquidity stakes uh, for, for trading, right? And for example, so let's imagine that uh, in traditional exchange, say is it uh, goes up, it means that. Uh, People will withdraw it uh, from your from your pool, right? And there will be less and less uh, it. So it's good if you owe it and you put in portfolio. Effectively, it's it's good for you, right? You 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 have some limited. It's almost like you sold a call option. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to hedge, we want to hedge the downside. So whenever we commit uh, some it to the pool. We also hedge it, delta hedge it using future. So we are kind of short on the downside. Actually, we we, we sold uh, straddle, right? So we lose on both ways. And this is uh, what is called impermanent loss. And of course, it's a, it can be hedged. Yeah, it's an option profile. You can delta hedge it or can, you can replicate with a static uh, options portfolio. Uh, and this is uh, mathematical. It's a mathematical problem. You you can find different solutions. You can find uh, look for an optimal 
solution. And what is also more general is this optimal uh, optimal uh, design of this automated uh, uh, pools and liquidity providers. Because for liquidity providers, uh, risk reward optimization. You want to provide like you want to uh, for the protocol, they want to attract uh, more liquidity because this will lower uh, uh, transaction uh, in the slippage costs. It will attract more trading. It will attract more fees, right? So it's a risk reward optimization and it has uh, very nice connection to real world assets on blockchain. This is a very big topic. I saw many articles predicting exponential rise in, uh, uh, of uh, real world on blockchains. And, and for blockchain ecosystem, it's important then to have secondary markets where people would trade these assets. And as I said, on, on blockchain, it's only possible with uh, this liquidity pools, with automated uh, market making. And we, so as a pre-annotation, we probably again we looking uh, with Alex Lipton on, on some of these uh, bigger say problems and hopefully we, we, we come up with something nice so stay tuned absolutely looking forward to that Arto thanks very much for uh, talking to me today it was really interesting to to hear about your research on all these uh, these subjects thanks very much thank you Maura and uh, Thank you, audience, uh, for, for listening. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>